0: Just give us one hour, and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers-Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We're talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish the heart we are talking about pursuing and creating the good life today this is something that we talk about quite frequently on this show Um, we approach it from many angles but my first guest today is doing just that jonathan fields is on a mission to illuminate and improve the human condition a new york city dad a husband award-winning author entrepreneur and strategist 800 CEO Reed named his last book, Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance, the number one personal development book of 2011. Fields founded and currently runs media and education venture, Good Life Project, where he and his team produce a broadcast quality web show and top rated podcast, along with a series of acclaimed events, trainings, and the Camp GLP Annual Summer Camp for Grown-Ups. The bigger picture? GLP is a movement to bring together people in the quest to inspire the pursuit of life well lived. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, It's my pleasure. I'll do my best to try and live up to even a part of that uh, intro. Thank you.
1: Well, you're, you're, do, you're doing just that. Tell us a little bit about the GLP because it's a global movement and you are spreading the good word about what it means to not pursue, really create the good life.
2: Yeah. You know, it actually started, um, well, truth be told, it's probably a couple of decades old in my head, um, but it started as uh, my formal vocation in the beginning of 2012 when I kind of said, you know what? I want to see if I can learn from people around the world who seem to really have pieces of the puzzle figured out. And, and we built a, a venture around it, which enables me to really make it my pure focus. So we traveled around the world and continue to do so interviewing and filming and recording um, everyone from people like Sakyong Mipham Rinpoche, who's the head of Shambhala Buddhism globally to uh, people who uh, I'm sure your community know. Um, like uh, uh, big names in uh, in puzzle psychology or um, behavioral economics and stuff like that, really on the quest to try and figure out what is this thing? What are the elements of a life well lived and and what are some amazing, beautiful stories, examples of people who seem to have pieces of the puzzle figured out and and are living an extraordinary story so you know I would sit down with people like brene Brown or you know who 's this tremendous um, a uh, grounded theory researcher on shame and vulnerability, I would sit down with Milton Glazer, who's the most iconic living designer alive today. is massively prolific in his 80s. So it's been an incredible journey. And from that, uh, a lot of things have become evident and we've started to really be able to put together more pieces of the puzzle. And, and the coolest thing is that um, then I get to turn around and share this with people.
1: You're living in a laboratory of your own creation. That's, yeah. that's, how, that's how I see it. You know, lucky you.
2: Yeah, lucky absolutely. <laughs> absolutely.
1: You know, it's how we get to discover on our own. But more importantly, it's how we share it with the tribe, how we create community with this vast amount of knowledge that's held by incredible people around the world. It is, uh, it's astounding. Tell us a little bit about your prior application, because you went from, Literally, from a, an advocate, from being a lawyer, a hedge fund lawyer, to then transforming into a wellness entrepreneur, author, and speaker.
2: Yeah, you know, I was, um, I was actually the lemonade stand kid. I was a, I was a lifelong entrepreneur, and then made a bit of a, a, a right turn into the world of law and uh, practice law for, I guess, about four and a half, five years. Um, venture capital stuff, securities law. And um, I I hit a point pretty quickly where it became clear that this was not going to be my future. And I actually ended up in the hospital in emergency surgery where um, I I ended up with a a huge infection in the middle of my body and an abscess uh, where it basically ate a hole through my intestines from the outside in. Thankfully, that went okay uh, and I came out and I healed well. But it was a real wake-up call for me. You know, when your body rejects your career, you kind of have to listen so I started making a list of the things I thought would be much more meaningful and fulfilling and resonant to do with the way I invested my time on the planet. And, um, that led me fairly readily back out of law and into this world of entrepreneurship and wellness and health. Um, and I've just, you know, I've shifted gears a number of times along that path, starting a couple of different companies and selling them and now focusing more on, on our online endeavor and media. And, uh, but, um, It's, it's all sort of driven by the common thread of trying to figure out these pieces of the puzzle. You know, how do we optimize a human condition and really live well and then, and then share that and inspire that in others?
1: What would you say is the common thread from which we weave the good life?
2: You know, one of the things that I learned, um, I, so I asked that question: What does it mean to you to live a good life? To you know, 125 different people, actually more than that at this point, as we've traveled around, and I, w- I thought we would start getting a lot of repetition. And what really surprised me was how individual the answer to that question is. But there are a few common themes that that pop up. Um, one is gratitude. Gratitude is a huge part, um, and whether you 're speaking with somebody who 's got the perception of nothing or literally nothing or somebody who has the perception or like the reality of of everything, very often that doesn 't reflect their internal experience of life it 's all about the lens that they bring to it, so I think the big message is gratitude matters a lot, vulnerability matters a lot, serving a meaningful purpose matters a lot um, but fundamentally, the real awakening for me was that that living a good life it's it 's The good life is not a place at which you arrive. It's, it's a lens through which you see and create your world. And when you, when you come to that place, you start to realize that you have the capacity to start living at this moment, no matter what your physical, psychological, and geographic condition is.
1: Beautifully said. And what I really hear you driving home is that the good life is now. Yeah. It's here.
2: Well, it, it it may not be the way you're experiencing it now, but but I think the idea is that the possibility for it exists in every moment. Um that may be hard to fathom. And it's you know, there are people who are living through horrible, horrible poverty or horrible experiences in life right now. And I would never deign to say, Oh, well, you're just not seeing it through rose-colored glasses. And of course there's terrible things going on in their lives and you know, is that person living a good life? Are they capable of it? Um one of the people that I interviewed was actually somebody who filmed the documentary of street kids uh, in Nairobi who were living in absolute poverty and huffing glue to get by every day. And I asked her, I said, are these kids, if you sat there and asked them, are they living a good life, what would they answer? And expecting them to be like, absolutely not, it's awful. And she said, you know, a lot of them actually would tell you that they are. And I said, it's really odd because they have this lens of a deep, a very deeply connected community on the street um, and a deep sense of family and that actually is a powerful part of that sensation. So, again, I would never be so arrogant as to say, well, you know, like, well, that person, you know, living a fantastic life, there's a mass amount of challenge and suffering, but if we can somehow lessen that through the lens that we bring to the experience, if we can't change the circumstance, can we change the lens that we bring to that circumstance to allow us to find a greater sense of ease within it? I think that's that's a big question and exploration for me.
1: I would agree with you. I. I in my personal practice i work with a tremendous amount of uh, substance abuse addiction trauma including you know sexual trauma war trauma so i do have a fair amount of exposure to suffering and one of the things that i focus on it's not just simply the perspective it is cultivating the choice the strength to know that we can minimize the needless suffering, that suffering is very much a part of the human condition, but it's what we do with it that can shift that perspective.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it also gets back to Viktor Frankl, you know, when, and, and his lens, which is really, um, you know, you enduring whatever comes your way in life is is so deeply connected to a profound sense of purpose or meaning connected to that experience. And if you can find that, it may not mean that you're happy and go lucky, um, but it may mean that you can actually feel at the same time that that there's there's a sense of purpose and intention and and um, goodness in the life that you experience every day.
1: Tell us a little bit about your book, Uncertainty: Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance.
2: Sure. I mean, that was something. Most of the things that I write are stored as personal questions, and for me, I'm I'm kind of a born creator. Um, I was, you know, like I said, I was the entrepreneur, lemonade stand kid, a painter, an artist, a music writer, composer, and I'm constantly in the place where I have to wade out into this uh, abyss of deep uncertainty to create something new. And for the vast majority of my life, I would always experience that as suffering, a fair amount of suffering, too. And I began to wonder whether that was necessary because I would look at there, you know, we have, we hold up icons of people who seemingly just don't feel that, who create these massive things, whether it's artistic bodies of work, huge companies, whatever it may be, and seem to be okay in that place of constant high level ambiguity and uncertainty. And I wondered, is that genetic or is it trainable? And that's, and and if it is trainable, how? And that's really the question that I was seeking to answer in that book. And, uh, the good news is that, uh, that, you know, there are a very thin slice of, of people who probably are wired, uh, by the time they hit adulthood to just handle that place with so much more equanimity, but most of us aren't. But there are a lot of things that you can do, you know, everything from a mindfulness practice to ritualizing to a lot of very basic things that honestly, a lot of high level creators do without realizing that they're doing it or understanding what the effect is. And um, so that that was really what that exploration was about. And, and like I said, the great news was that I discovered it is trainable and very often with some fairly basic practices that you can integrate into your daily life.
1: We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jonathan Fields of The Good Life Project. To learn more, visit goodlifeproject.com, on Facebook, Jonathan Fields, and on Twitter at Jonathan fields here come those tunes and we will be right back
0: we know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity we'll be right back to explain how on harvesting happiness with lisa cypress cayman on toginet.com like us on facebook at harvesting happiness and on twitter at HH Talk radio lisa returns with more of harvesting happiness following this short break Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her 1st ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys
2: to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com.
0: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about creating the Good Life with Jonathan Fields, who is on a mission to illuminate and improve the human condition. Prior to the break, we were talking about um, the book that he wrote, which is entitled Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance. And we're going to, you know, morph the conversation a little bit Uh, to talk about creativity and productivity how do we jumpstart our creativity how do we go from an idea or in the absence of, of an idea creating a field a hospitable place from which to start generating that mojo that creative mojo so jonathan give give us your approach which is unique
2: yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. I've I've spent a fair amount of time exploring creativity and there's certainly a, a pretty substantial body of work and research on it, which is wonderful. Um, a, a lot of the work <laughs> uh, sort of like very directly contradicts each other, but still there's a lot to think about and a lot to chew on. But what I've really found and the fascination point for me is that so much of the work around creativity and the conversation around it is around thinking systems. You know, so how do we create the, the systems and the environment that allows for creativity to flourish? So we had, you know, things like, uh, written prompts, things like, uh, masterminding, things like, uh, design thinking, which is really hot right now as this thinking system to try and encourage creativity and innovation. And I think that's a really important part of the conversation because it creates the container that allows creativity to flourish. My exploration is a little bit more personal though. You know, my question is, regardless of how good that container is, the environment, the system, if you're not optimizing the human being within the system to be able to really create on their highest level, then the system doesn't matter all that much. So I look at it and I say, okay, what stops people from coming up with good ideas? You know, on a, on a much deeper mindset level, what's Mm -hmm. happening in their heads that stops them? And um yeah, what you find very often is that everything is driven by fear. Um, you know, there's a fascinating study that was done by UPenn, I believe it was about four years ago, where they interviewed um, a number of mid- to high-level managers and large corporations who charged their teams with coming up with great ideas. And they just kept rejecting all these ideas. And then they put some independent evaluators in and evaluated those ideas and realized that a lot of those ideas actually were great. But the people who were reviewing them couldn't acknowledge the fact that they were great because if they did, they would have to take on risk. They would have to move into that place of uncertainty again and that would shut them down. So what we know now is that there's actually an inverse relationship between your ability to tolerate ambiguity and uncertainty and creativity. Um, literally, if you go into that anxious, fear-based state, it shuts creativity down. So, you know, the question then becomes, well, then how do, what do we do about that? Um, because most work environments, most creative environments, put a huge amount of stress and pressure on people to deliver next generation, big breakthrough ideas. Um, and it creates an anxiety, a super stress state that destroys the very thing they're trying to create. So what you find also is that um, certain regular practices, things like mindfulness practice or any tor- any sort of really, um, meditative, attentional training type of practice can have a pretty profound effect on an individual's ability to come up with extraordinary ideas. So, you know, what I found was after sitting down for the last book and, and spending a long time interviewing some of the most creative people across a wide array of fields from painters to writers to CEOs to scientists was that there was a striking amount of, um, meditative practice in these people's lives. And, you know, the practice itself varied. Mindfulness is certainly becoming a growing interest for so many people. TM, which has been around for a very long time is, is a regular practice for a lot of people. Um, But what it does is it rewires your brain so that you can go into that space that hyper-creative people are charged with going into to come up with next-level ideas where you don't know how it's going to end. But you have to consistently stay there and sit there and play there and be there for an uncomfortable amount of time. And you can stay there long enough for not the first-level ideas, which are usually not very good, not the second-level ideas, which kind of clear out the first level, but that third order, the third generation of ideas to start to percolate up. And those are the ideas that very often are the big breakthrough ideas, the big insights. But if you're so shut down by fear and anxiety and you don't have tools to cultivate equanimity that allow you to stay in the process long enough for those ideas to arise, then effectively, no matter what system you build around the people, the people aren't optimized at a point where they're actually capable of accessing their best.
1: I think you hit on something very, very important about optimizing um, people power. And that is when we are caught up in our daily existence, which for many is very stressful and, and anxiety producing, um, deadline driven, um, responsibility driven. We are not in that mindful state, that state where, you know, the brain is just a little bit calmer. The breath is just a little bit slower. The, um, the body is a little bit more relaxed and it's in that sort of clear space. That that percolation can happen, but if we don't um, allow time for it, we miss those little windows, those portals when those ideas can flow, or from which the ideas can flow.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great. thank you for adding that. That's a really important point, too. you know it's, it's one thing to develop the practices and the tools that allow you that baseline equanimity, the space, but you, you bring up a great point, which is you know we've, actually, we've started to, to basically carve all free time out of our days. And what we know about creativity also is as a general rule, the big ideas, the big breakouts, they don't happen when you're trying to get them. They happen when you work really hard and then you step away. You know, you exercise, you go for a walk, you go into nature, you listen to good music, you take a nap. And all of a sudden these things tend to tend to drop from the sky. You know, and what happens is when we remove all of the pauses from our day, we're inadvertently removing all of those little windows of opportunity for the best stuff to come to us. So when you you know and it's funny I I was actually I'm waiting was waiting online for a cup of coffee at a local cafe yesterday and I looked around the cafe and every single person online and every single person sitting at the cafe had their head in their cell phone or their tablet. And I was about to dig into my pocket and check my email. And I said to myself, what am I doing here? Is there any real genuine need for me to be checking my email right now? No, absolutely (laughs) not. You know, reality is probably like I only need to do that twice a day. But we're so conditioned that that's just the moment that there's a moment of stillness. We reach for a digital device to check. You know, and I wonder what the longer term, bigger picture impact um, of that will be. And removing all those windows of time where our best solutions come to us. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought that point up.
1: Well, it's interesting. I was listening to an interview on NPR a couple of days ago, and they were talking about the difference between um, uh, millennials and their work habits and their career goals and life aspirations and older people you know and the difference is that um the younger generation is not driven by money they are driven by lifestyle and they are prepared to work more hours as long as the quality of life is built into their existence you know mm-hmm. whereas in the paradigm in which I was raised, it was like, you know, Monday through Friday and then you're done. It's not how I operate now because I prefer a different workflow. But it's it's interesting how the generations have changed and now we're going back to allowing more space in our days.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it evolves from here. There is no doubt a generational difference in the expectations that we have in return for our, the way that we contribute to the world. Um, and I wonder, you know, over the long term, do, do brains just start to become wired differently so that they can handle the level of constant stimulus and create micro pauses that still allow us to get the same level of of ideation out? I, who, who, nobody knows. We're in, you know, we're in this big window of, of, um, uncertainty right now where nobody really knows what the effect is, uh, or will be on our thought processes, our brains, our capacity to think and create. Um, and we're not going to know probably for a few decades until we look back and see, oh, that's what really happened there. And that was either fantastic or that was horrible.
1: A good point. But we do know that the younger generation is better at toggling, you know, taking on multiple tasks, going from one to the other than older people are. And, uh, you know, we've heard the expression, you know, multitasking, but really uh, – Our brains are not wired for multitasking. And yet this younger generation, their brain capacity is shifting, is adapting in order to, I have two teenagers. So I see them, you know, on their, on their phones, texting, um, doing homework, listening to music, or possibly watching something on TV. And I don't know how they do it, but they do it.
2: Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I think there's, we're in the midst of this massive shift, not just in the way that society engages with, um, with each other, um, but also potentially in the way that it's affecting people's brains and how, you know, the the younger generation is going to evolve and how I have a teenage daughter also. Um, so, and I'm fascinated. I'll just kind of watch how many things she'll have going on at at any given moments in time and switching (laughs) between them. But, uh, so it's, and it's interesting for me also, I'm, I'm probably a little unusual in that I, I, I'm pretty comfortable tuning out a lot of the world. So I'll very often write with a TV in the background, with a radio, or in a cafe with a lot of noise around me, and I'm good with that. Um, but I know a lot of people my age who have, don't have that capacity. And I wonder if part of it for me also is that I have a fairly deep meditative practice, and maybe that helps me uh, you know, tune the attention a bit
1: amen to that and i do as well and maybe that's why we have this uh pursuit in common you know there is something uh uh that happens to people of a certain age or with a certain set of uh lifestyle experiences that provokes us to seek a path that perhaps is more contemplative and active at the same time which i see you doing very much um, we're almost out of time. I wanted to ask you one more question in that what what is maker-centric business and aligned entrepreneurship?
2: Uh, so I'm a long-time entrepreneur, a phenomenon that I would see fairly often is an entrepreneur would come to me having built a company that the world perceives as successful, making great money, yet they're miserable showing up at the the company that they've created because what they've done is – They've created a, a career or a company which um, was built around serving a particular need for a person or a community, which is great. It's a necessary part of entrepreneurship. But what they never did was they never did a similar analysis. Say, what do I need out of this beyond money? And is the business model or the people that we're serving, is the way that we're serving them or the products, the brands, the services, are those aligned with me? Are they giving me what I need out of the way that I show up and contribute to the world every day? Very often a lot of people don't ever do that calculation. So they find that they, they've built something which, you know, is outwardly successful and financially profitable, yet they hate showing up at the very thing that they've created. So, you know, there's an interesting exploration that happens at that point, which is you then take somebody through and actually do the self inquiry to find out what do I actually need to be happy with the way that I contribute to the world, which almost nobody does beforehand. You know, we kind of just go on autopilot through that. And when you take somebody back through a process of really going through that deep self inquiry, that allows you to make decisions in a very different place and potentially shift the way that you contribute to the world, the way that you build companies and and potentially you know we 've seen people entirely shift um, the format and the structure of the the entities that they built around that
1: This is an invitation for another show on <laughs> on unconscious con- on capitalism and sure. conscious entrepreneurship because I think really this is the next big thing for for many of us i mean it's been going on for years but it's how do we align you know our passion our purpose our place and meaning to live a congruent life you know where we make our money is where we're comfortable sitting you know that it's not a, a world that's in two separate pieces you know that the work and the life is life
2: yeah I agreed
1: so i here's an, an invitation to return so Please do. And once again, uh, the website is thegoodlifeproject.com. And on Twitter, it's at Jonathan Fields. And on Facebook, Jonathan Fields. You've been an absolute delight. Thank you for sharing The Good Life, for all the amazing work that you do. And I just wanted to let you know that when Jonathan Fields is not building ventures and telling stories, he can be found dancing around his living room with his wife and daughter and writing in the third person.
2: Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Likewise.
0: We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook.
2: Got happiness now: eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com.
0: Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast. Why? Because we're talking about the good life. We're talking about ways to create and sustain Happiness and well-being from the ground up with my next guest, Woody Tosh, who is the dynamic and visionary founder as well as chairman of Slow Money, a nonprofit headquartered in Boulder, Colorado with an alliance of national and international chapters. Slow Money took root in 2009 with Tosh's groundbreaking book, Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money, investing as if food farms and Fertility Mattered. As Tosh traveled the country on a book tour, audience members stepped forward one by one, inspired to create within their local communities the change that he spoke about. And I'm going to bring Woody on now because I'm excited to talk about the movement that took hold because It's Low Money is growing by leaps and bounds in very exciting ways. Good morning, Woody. Morning. Pleasure to have you on the show. Talk to us about the trip that you just returned from. You said you've been traveling for the last month and you've been doing some incredibly exciting things.
3: Well, uh, actually, my travel uh, hap- happily, talk about harvesting happiness, um, has slowed down a little from the initial pace because, as you said, when the book came out, I seemed like I was on the road all the time. But I just got back from Louisville, Kentucky, where we just had our fifth national gathering. We had 850 folks from 46 states. And Four countries and uh, 21 food entrepreneurs from around the United States, and a whole bunch of other folks. And uh, that's kind of that's become our big annual uh, pulse that we put into the marketplace, I guess you could say, uh, bringing everyone together and getting everyone excited and getting money to, to change hands.
1: You are widely regarded as a pioneer of the concepts of patient capital, and I love this term, patient capital, um, and as well as mission-related investing and in community development venture capital. Prior to Slow Money, you were involved in angel investment networking um, and invested a ton of money promoting um, sustainable startups.
3: Well, the phrase a ton of money brings a smile to my face because it was either a ton or a pea or a, <laughs> something much smaller than a ton, whatever you come up with. Um, <laughs> well,
1: it depends on your perspective, right?
3: Yeah, you're referring you to sit. Investor Circle. And there, over about a 25-year period, we've invested. Now, I think it's north, probably north of $160 million in hundreds of, of early stage. And then you can put whatever language you want on it, triple bottom line, green, conscious somewhat patient um, uh, startups that are promoting sustainability. But, but your comment about patient capital, I think, is most pertinent. I've been, been thinking about that and writing about that for about 20 years. And when I, when I discovered Slow Food, um, I had my little aha moment that patient capital really needed to be slow money.
1: And this concept of slowing down to create, uh, perhaps art, somewhat artfully, and lovingly, uh, a product or a community that creates um, sustainability in a way that is new to many people. you know I would say for the the, the the average capitalist, you know the wall Street Gordon gecko type, this concept of slow money is is the antithesis of the SOP in in eras bygone.
3: Well, sure. That's exactly why it's needed. We've got, we've got oh, exactly. Wall, we've got plenty of activity on Wall Street. You know, we don't have a shortage of fast money. We don't have a shortage of derivatives. We don't have a shortage of uh, opportunities to invest in the stock market. Um, in fact, you know, you won't be shocked to hear. I would argue we have too much of that. But you know, wherever you want to draw the line, I think common sense would say we need a little bit more, either a little bit more or a lot more balance than we have in our culture. And that's in all kinds of different ways, whether it be in food, where it comes out as fast food, or in the stock market, where it's fast money, just money that people don't really know where it's going or what it's doing, it's just fast. And, uh, you know, using the narrow calculus of finance, it's, quote, low risk, unquote, which is kind of a goofy term. I don't know if you want to talk about that. We can talk about risky compared to what. But I would say what I've learned is that millions of people, and that's a guesstimate, we have, to, we have many tens of thousands of people now involved in slow money in different ways, but I believe they're a proxy for the millions of people who believe that our lives are out of control, that slowing down is important in a variety of ways, whether it be you know spiritual practice, food preparation, daily life, um, trying to make things more comprehensible. Uh, getting a little bit of control over things. Uh, these are really important things. They go way beyond just money and food. But, but I think food is a really it's just a superb place to begin working on these things because is a tangible result. You can see a CSA. You can see a local farm. You can see more fertility in the soil or more healthy food in the school system. I mean, these are very tangible, immediate benefits of slowing down.
1: Indeed. And it it is the process of nurturing this, you know, patient capital. And that's, I mean, that's the word that pops into my mind. And you, and you nature, you nurture it through mindfulness. You nurture it through awareness. You, you nurture it through raising the consciousness of communities uh, locally and then globally. I would assume that's the goal that, you know, you get everybody taking responsibility for their own immediate environments. And oh my goodness, one day you wake up and you've got things that are working well.
3: Yeah, I I always um, am very careful about using words like awareness and the other words that go along with it. I I totally agree with everything you said, of course, and I I, I really think we're at a a time where we just need to be practicing. We need to be doing things differently. Um, You know, the journey within or withdrawing from the craziness to try to get some sanity is obviously something everybody has to deal with in their own way but what I what I really enjoy about slow money is we're out there doing something we're taking a little of our money out of Wall Street and putting it to work in you know a small farm a seed company a farm to table restaurant um you know a distribution business a cheesemaker a grain mill i mean there's there's a whole it's the whole gamut of things that used to exist you know that's the thing we're not dreaming these things up they used to exist 50 to 100 years ago and they've been decimated by the by globalization and consolidation so uh, taking a something and really working at it to push it into, to hold it a little closer, put it to work locally, take the time and energy it needs to do it, and that's kind of the Achilles heel of all this takes time and energy to do it because all the, the easy investment structures go the other way. But if you are willing to take the time and energy to do it, I guess that's the, the emphasis I'm trying to make here we actually are doing it. That activity uh, yields many rewards, not just financial.
1: Well, I was introduced to your work, uh, from a magazine that I saw at my locals, my local farmers market. I recently moved to a somewhat rural part of LA and every weekend we go off to our, our farmer's market, and it is exemplary of everything that you describe. And what I love is that I know where my egg's from. I know, I know who the egg farmer is. You know, I know where my kale comes from because the fields are right near my house. And this is a very different culture for modern urban America, but very um, old school and normal maybe 50 years ago.
3: Sure. I mean, th- this is the power of what you just described to me, um, can be seen very easily in uh, CSAs, community supported agriculture. The beauty of a CSA, where, where let's say you have a hundred or two hundred or three hundred, what would normally be customers of a farm, they all agree to buy, let's say one one hundredth or one two hundredth or one three hundredth of the production of that farm, but in advance of the of the farm year. So you're putting some money into the farmer's hands, you know, or, um, at the beginning of the planting season, and then you're taking whatever your share of whatever he or she produces. Through the course you know of the harvest, and it 's very place based very relationship based has a whole different puts a whole different um, meaning to the idea of sharing risk as opposed to minimizing risk in return for an investor you know we 're sharing the risk with the farmer, and you get all those corollary benefits. you know where your food came from you you get to see you know the tangible impact, and the reason this is important you know the detractors of this will say oh, that 's quaint and cute and Maybe a few hundred thousand people can do it, but it's not a meaningful response to global hunger and carbon in the atmosphere and all these things. And and maybe we should talk about that. But but um, I think those are legitimate concerns and and things that make me kind of scratch my head at night. But the but the tangible results of it are way beyond just a little activity of a few fringe people. This is really a radical reimagining of what the economy can look like at the local level and it's something we desperately need, you know, to Kind of open up new possibilities for us.
1: And in addition to the economy, it is also about the emotional well-being of communities. There's some, there. There's something else happening out there at the farmers' market besides what's being put in the shopping bags. You know? Yeah,
3: absolutely. And Michael Pollan has written very nicely about this. Many other people have as well. You know, there, there are some people actually trying to measure uh, aspects of this of what we're talking about. So things like. As apparently innocuous as the number of conversations you have while shopping. So just imagine you're walking down the aisles of a big box supermarket, and you know what the answer is. You say, "How many conversations do you have while you're in there?" And the answer is very few, maybe none. Then go to the farmer's market and say, "How many conversations do you have while you're shopping at a farmer's market?" Much less conversations with someone who produced something that you're buying. You know, that's like a whole other layer but just the conversations themselves, and you know the answer is you have dozens of conversations, or, or just say lots more. And again, that's not innocuous. That's about relationships. It's about culture. It's about, you know, are you want, do you want to buy things from, that were made who knows where by who knows who, you know, who knows how, you know, or do you want to buy something from someone where there's reciprocity uh, over time, trust, um, and all the other cultural things that come with so So you're very right to highlight the community part of this. It's very important.
1: Well, and this is what I'm seeing, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm an observer of life. I work with people who are going through crises in their lives in my, in my private practice. And I, uh, what's missing in so many people's lives is this deep connection with our daily lives, not, not, not our families and our loved ones. You know, we can, we can set that aside for the sake of this conversation, but it's that daily engagement in life which uh, is missing that detracts from our well-being, and this is what I see is happening by this movement. You know, we're, of course, we're eating better and we're eating more consciously, but it's this this psychosocial element that is really being enhanced through this experience, and I I, I I've witnessed it myself and my in my children, and it's it's beautiful. You know it's beautiful to go home and and make a meal and talk about the guy from whom we purchased the food and we don't get that. I mean, in the middle of of L.A., that's an, an anomaly, not a, a regularity.
3: Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I think of urbanization and globalization and the internet, the information age, all of these things as kind of like the you know the the Greek um, you know story of the Trojan horse, where you know something is offered that seems like a great thing and then it ends up destroying you. And yeah. Know that it's a little too extreme to say that globalization and urbanization and consumerism and the internet are going to destroy us so i'm I'm not going all the way to a luddite extreme here or anything even close to it, but I do think um, the opposite is also true you'd have to be a blind let's say technophile or a blind have blind faith in the power of markets I, I think of it as free market fundamentalism i mean you'd have to you'd have to be a blind believer in Wall Street not to see that the things that are that for the last hundred years were were very exciting and seductive and powerful and helped us raise standards of living and created a whole bunch of interesting things that those same things now are piling up long-term costs and are starting to are becoming unsustainable in a variety of different ways socially and environmentally and whatever so you know it's just really important to look beyond them to try to look and say well you know where are we going to be 50 years from now and haven 't we gone you know isn 't there such a thing as too much of a good thing? We need to slow down and and it 's always important to say this is not either or The conversation very easily becomes either or because people tend to I, you know i you know, 'm not enough of a psychologist to even finish that sentence. I can just tell you but, the conversation does tend to become either or people say oh you 're against capitalism you 're against free markets and the answer is no, a farm is a business, a farm to table restaurant is a business, a niche organic company is a is a business. But we're, you know, I'm against, let's say, unfettered capitalism. Let's say I'm against the idea that all economic growth is good or there's no such thing as a company that's too big or money that's too fast.
1: We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to carry on the conversation with Woody Tosh of slowmoney.org. To learn more, you can go there. You can also go to beatcoin.org. And on Facebook as, as well as Twitter, the handle is Slow Money. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. I
0: wanted to find we know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on TogiNet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break.
3: Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details.
0: Be a part of the grateful good. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on TogiNet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on TogiNet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast. Why? Because it's kind, it's legal, it's free, it's available 24-7 on a variety of broadcast outlets. And we're talking about the good life, conscious capitalism with Woody Tosh. So, Woody, we we went to the break um, sort of... Uh, dabbling in this concept of conscious capitalism, and you have a, another branch of the work that you do called Bitcoin, and tell us yeah. how that works.
3: Well, thanks for asking. Uh, we, we just started something new, and it is called Bitcoin, and folks who are paying attention to the financial news will immediately get the play on words on Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> Bitcoin is, it is meant to create a chuckle, so I'm glad you chuckled. Um yeah, you know, I think a little humor is important when dealing with uh, things as daunting as economics and finance and whatnot. So, you know, a little play is good, but also a sense of urgency. And both of those things led us to create Bitcoin, which is in the jargon of the day, it's a donation based crowdfunding platform that's tied to slow money events. Now that's a kind of a, a horrible sentence, so I wish I hadn't said it. But what it is is a um a way that people can chip in as low as $25, tax deductible, and then vote for where their money goes. And the, uh, We just did our first one, and I would, anybody who's listening to this podcast, depending on when they get to it, this is a work in progress. Uh, so you could say we just did our first Bitcoin campaign. We raised $100,000 uh, from around 350 people. About half of them were in the room with us at our big event in Louisville, and the other half did it online, and we gave three zero percent, Three-year loans to three of the entrepreneurs who were on the stage at our big event in Louisville. So we're just exploring ways to more democratically um, and more slowly, if you will, thinking long-term. How can how can we begin to use the power of the internet to to support direct local relationships? Meaning, we were all in the room together, and everybody who's in the room came from all these local networks. So there's a lot of local knowledge that's being kind of um, represented when we were all together, and we're trying to figure out how Bitcoin can. Could be a fun way to um, amplify that.
1: It sounds like actually a lot of fun. I did go on the website prior to starting the show, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little something over there. Um, I, Paul Newman said, I just happen to think that in life we need to be a little like the farmer who puts back in the soil what he takes out. And I think these are very, very wise words for life.
3: Me too. <laughs> That's why we put it <laughs> in the slow money principles. We have yeah. something called the slow money principles about 30,000 people have signed them. We don't, we don't promote it heavily. It's just kind of there on our website, so if people go to slowmoney.org, you can click on the Slow Money Principles. There are six on them. They're pretty broad. The first one says we must bring money back down to earth. So I don't think you can get much more common sense and broader than that. Um, and the last one uses that Paul Newman quote, and then it asks three questions. It says acknowledging the wisdom of those words, of those Paul Newman words. Let's ask these questions. What would the world be like if we invested 50% of our money within 50 miles of where we live? What if there are a new generation of companies that gave away 50% of their profits? And what if there are 50% more organic matter in our soil 50 years from now? What so if? Answer those questions. You know? I dare you. If you can answer those questions, uh, we'll all be a little bit better off. <laughs>
1: well i you know from from a, a psychological perspective i would say you have more joy and sustainability and 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 healthy communities if if, if those three principles could be uh, uh attained and they are attainable um that's what you'd end up with the what if is you'd have a better place in which to live
3: yeah and and, and obviously um you know those questions kind of emerged as as let's say queries to get us thinking about things in a different way. I mean, jumping all the way to a world in which 50% of our money was invested within 50 miles where we live—well, that's imponderable. I'm not even sure that that would work. But the direction is a good thing. I mean, we now we're we're in a world where 99.9% of our money is just streaming off to somewhere into financial markets, into global things, into derivatives, into all these things that, that really have no discernible relationship to our lives. And therefore, I, I would argue, are indirectly you know, degrading our lives or distracting us or, or seducing us or whatever. So, so, yeah, they're not meant as a prescription. Those questions are meant as a direction.
1: Oh, I, well, I, and I think it's fun to imagine. You know, what if? Just what if?
3: I couldn't agree with you more. And, and happily, <laughs> I would say there's a bunch of people out there for whom who seem to be sharing that, uh, that interest. And that's, a, that's a, you know, a small but important sign of hope.
1: Let's talk about the vision of slow money because you have a very cool vision about what it means to be an investor in the 21st century.
3: It's a it's a really interesting thing. Um, We we spend um, you know untold hours. (laughs) uh, It's probably measured in days, weeks, and months and years at this point talking about investing and philanthropy and slow money and you know where does slow money really fit into the world of finance and. and the answer is, uh, I mean, I can give a very gross, oversimplified answer, and that is, it's at the meeting place between investing and philanthropy. So that's a pretty, uh, and it's maybe good to keep it that simple because that's a kind of an ambiguous space where all kinds of sort of social entrepreneurship and triple bottom line, this and that, and conscious capital and patient capital and mission-related investing, all these things are kind of in there, along this boundary. So the, you know, the vision of slow money is to empower individuals. This is really uh, important. Uh, we're not a fund. We're not trying to scale a billion-dollar this, that, or the other thing. We're not just working for you know a few hundred wealthy Americans who want to invest in a few dozen uh, organic food companies. I have nothing against what I just said, but that's not what we're doing. Uh, we are trying to empower a large number of just plain regular folks. Um, who have somewhere between very little or maybe a little bit more than a little money to put to work. That means from twenty-five dollars to millions of dollars, and, and and the checks. I don't think we said these numbers so far in the interview. Um, over thirty-eight million dollars. We're a little behind in the counting. It's pro- almost certainly over forty million dollars now. Has gone to somewhere between three hundred and fifty and four hundred small food businesses in the U.S., Canada, France, and Belgium now. Almost all in the U.S., but it's starting to spread to these other places. So um, the vision of Slow Money is to continue kind of empowering people to get engaged in small groups at the local level doing that, putting a little of their money to work in small food businesses near where they live. And if you just zoom back a tiny bit from that, you'd say putting the money to work in things that they understand near where they live, starting with food
1: and And the little vision that I have uh, glimpse into slow money is you talk about it starting with the soil that you know if we go back to the roots back to the earth
3: where does the soil fit into all this i mean how How would one somebody talk about you know food, money, and the soil, the actual soil and I get asked that a lot uh, it 's become a very central thing for me and for those of us doing slow money. And I I can't really give a full accounting for how I ended up there. I can just say that, you know, when I took the year off to write my book and I was thinking about my 25 years or so of doing, you know, socially responsible investing and philanthropy and angel investing, I was trying to figure out, why aren't we having more impact? Why isn't it more dollars flowing? Why is it so hard to get people out of what I now think of as a 20th century way of thinking about investing? and it just kind of came to me that soil fertility the actual soil and if we can't grow food as a civilization in a way that leaves the soil as fertile or more fertile than we found it you fill in the blanks for the rest of that sentence it's not a good thing short term or long term and somehow once you think about the soil and how powerful it is you know we are living on a subsidy of fertility in the soil that took millions of years in one way to create and at the very least hundreds, uh, thousands of years accounting for it a little more directly to create and we're using it up in decades. So that's a horrible once you realize that um it's not something you really want to be complicit in. You want to try to to you know uh change your relationship to that. And then there's a much more immediate thing which is just putting your hands in the soil, which again yeah. just like the CSA thing, it's easy to dismiss it as being kind of oh yeah or whatever. You're just an old hippie and you want to put your hands in the soil, you know, go ahead. But there is something really profound about it, and it is not to be dismissed. If you grow a little bit of your own food, um, there's all kinds of um, science coming out now about the actual health benefits, the actual benefits of soil microbes on your skin. But I'm not going all the way there. I'm just a little more common sense about that. That by connecting to the soil a little bit and realizing that it is teeming with life, and, it, and that all life really does depend on it, and that there is an immediate pleasure in interacting with it. Um, to me that's a really profound thing and i want some of my money to be doing that
1: indeed and then the next um, part of the equation of the vision is the entrepreneur entrepreneurs themselves that the entrepreneurs are the seeds
3: yeah i mean uh, there's a lot of different metaphorical ways you can talk about it let's go with them as seeds which is great i mean i talk about us all as building fertility in the soil of a restorative economy so that's how i kind of go from the actual soil but doesn't matter how you get there, we're heading to the same place. So we need diversity. We need economic, cultural, um, and ecological diversity, not just kind of financial diversification. So that means lots of small businesses um, that stay more connected to place and that are allowed to flourish in a diversified way because that kind of diversity um, produces health. And if you have monoculture and consolidation and uh, imbalance, that is not healthy. So, yeah, the entrepreneurs are the key. Um, And we're just, uh, the good news is we don't have to invent the entrepreneurs, they exist. Uh, Thanks to the local food movement and the organic food movement, there's quite a fertile, if I can use that word, um, upwelling of, you know, lots of entrepreneurship in the food space. So on one level, all we're doing is connecting people who care about what we're talking about to those local small food entrepreneurs and, and getting a little money to change hands.
1: And then the investors, you know getting the money to change hands, we talk about the investors as being the water in your metaphor, you know that the, the you know creating the nourishment that helps yep. uh, uh, care, keep, and grow the the crops
3: right i mean it, its it's no accident that we talk about liquidity when we talk about money, right Money is about flow yep. it's about exchange, um, and again, lots of places to go there. You could think about you know money that gets dammed up collected in huge pools called pension funds or banks or whatever and the challenges that that then creates you know to get the money out of there back to the local level but without going all the way there just say yes you can say the entrepreneurs are seeds and then there's the soil and the money is, is the water.
1: Thank you, Woody Tosh, for giving us a glimpse into uh, a a different way of looking at the world, at investment, at philanthropy. To learn more, please visit slowmoney.org or Bitcoin, and that's B-E-E-T, bitcoin.org. On Facebook and Twitter, the handles are slow money. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Jonathan Fields and Woody Tosh, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words and the kindest of actions until next time, remember happiness is an inside job happiness is your inside job and thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week, we appreciate you, have a great day
3: everybody
0: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, Philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag HarvestingHappiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.